Blog Talk Radio. <clears throat> Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you tonight, Miss Laura? I'm great. How are you? I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. Are you going to share know, about your weekend? You, you know I spent the weekend doing the last Theta Moms weekend at Indiana University with my younger daughter, Laura which was a lot of fun, but lots of, no, two consecutive late evenings. Um, and so it was exhausting, but fun, and um, yeah. probably a good thing it was my last one. I might be getting just a little too old for those. So. Those are easier to do, when, uh, or it's easier to do that kind of thing when you're 20 as opposed to uh, whatever age you are, isn't it? Pushing 50, you're almost there. I was going to let you say that, yeah. I didn't know if you divulged your age on the show or not. I'm not weird about that. I talk about my age all the time, so. Yeah, it's okay. It's not a big deal, but it was um, a lot of going out. So it was fun, though. Fun girls and fun moms and fun to do. But like I said, probably one night would be enough for me. It wouldn't really bother me if we didn't have to... Oh, so anyway, I survived it. It was fun. Well, and this will be a calm week where I'll be I'll be re- resting up. I'm sure. Yeah, but you're seeing lots of kids now. You have a you have a caseload like I used to have. So I know I have a newfound appreciation for seeing so many kids in a day. Yeah. So. Well, I'm I'm glad you had a nice time with Laura. That's always. Good to hear. Well, tonight is show number 144. It feels like we've been it feels like we missed more than one week. It seems like it's been a long time since we did the show. Um, you know, with since, the holidays and everything and then we I had know. The Super Bowl last week. Yeah, it hasn't been quite as consistent, but as far as I know, we don't have any things coming up that are going to interrupt the, the flow, so we should get on a better, more consistent roll. Maybe so. Maybe that's why it feels that way. Since we had the last podcast, I started a new feature on the website called Therapy Tip of the Week where I do a video. They've been being about, I think a couple were right at seven or eight minutes and then one was a little bit longer. But that has been so much fun and I've gotten positive feedback from regular, um, well, let's just say therapists that I recognize their names from either meeting them at conferences or callers to the show or uh, therapists that I've emailed with since the website started four years ago. And so that's been a lot of fun. The first one, I've done three. The first one was about cognitive activities that we can do with our more significantly um, challenged toddlers, so some cool activities to make at home. The second one and the third one have both been about Valentine's Day-related activities. So I think the ideas are really cute, and I think they're really practical. And they're good ways to spice up therapy sessions because it gets so darn boring if you do the same thing week after week after week. And so I'm hoping that um, these ideas will just give new life to therapy sessions and maybe they can be springboards for therapists to think, oh, I don't have quite that activity, but I could try this 
and it may give moms some new ideas too because um, as you know I shared with you that I had an avowal for a family that lives in Louisville a couple weeks ago that I'm not their regular speech therapist nor nor am I going to be and she was just talking about different ideas and different approaches and I think everybody needs a little new blood inserted from time to time and a new perspective and again really kind of shake up the status quo to really give a kid a jump start so even if um, you've done this for a while and are really really comfortable with your practice patterns maybe spicing it up could really re-energize the kids on your caseload and I think more than anything when I add new ideas it re-energizes me I love to hear new ideas and see new things that other people have done because it makes me more excited and more into it and I, I just I hope it turns out to be as good an opportunity for exchanging ideas as I hope that it will be right I have to admit and say I've only watched the first one um, I need to get caught up on the second and the third ones because, well, Valentine's Day is pretty soon, so if I'm, I guess it'd be easy to. Um, I'm assuming, even if you didn't use them for Valentine's Day, you could do them for the next holiday. You could relate Absolutely. whatever you did. Yeah, and, and Lauren, you know and the I great thing about, about toddlers. Well, and the great thing about toddlers is, and their mothers, they don't really care. You could use a val- you could use Valentine's activities for the next two weeks, and I really doubt that any mom is going to say, "Why are you still doing that? That holiday is over." I mean, that's right. just and toddlers, mm, they're not going to be breaking out their calendars and telling you you're late by a week. You know, it's yeah. going to be okay. <laughs> just you're right about that. Activities. Yeah. Well, Lauren, you know, we've talked about in the past that sometimes it's easy to get kind of in a rut with what we do, you know, and I find, you know, on a regular basis, if I, my go-to thing is I'll bring a different toy. If I'm really desperate, I just go buy a different toy. And like you said, so not only does it re-energize the kids, it re-energizes you, and these are things that you've kind of come up with that it doesn't necessarily mean you go buy a new toy, but that right. you're changing what you're doing and you're getting their attention a little better. And it can really make a huge difference switching up what you're doing, I think. I mean, anymore I feel like I'm at a point in my career where I can watch a kid and look and think, he looks bored, you know? Right. <laughs> That's not good, you know? Exactly, and, some, and sometimes you really can't change that about a kid until you change yourself and you change mm-hmm. the activity that you're doing. And right. it was, uh, it's was it been nice to get feedback from therapists who've said things like, I've done sensory boxes for a long time, but I never thought about using something other than rice or beans or uh, pasta or kind of the go-to things. And so I gave some different ideas for, for sensory boxes to use and have gotten some good feedback from that. And when you were saying um, that you had only seen the last one, in in your defense, I haven't really discovered what our what makes most sense about what day I'm going to post those. Because last week I really did post one on Tuesday, and then I went ahead and posted the one that should have been for this week over the weekend because it's Valentine's-related, and again, you know, a toddler's not telling me that it's late for Valentine's, but I certainly don't want a therapist saying, why don't you put this up the de- Valentine's Day? It would have been nice if you would get a little better notice there. So I went ahead and put it up over the weekend. Um, and so that 
I'm hoping that we fall into more of a regular pattern about when they'll be posted, but we haven't quite worked that out yet. And we have some little technical issues that we're working out, too. You've been to my house, Kate, so you know I live in an old house with giant ceilings, which I love, but it's really hard for audio. And so that's driving Johnny a little bit crazy, too, because he'll say, it sounds a little echoey, so... Forgive those things, too. I hope people can look past those little technical issues and hopefully view it for the content. So that's my little disclaimer there. Well, I think it's a very cool idea, and I will welcome some – because sometimes it's a lot – no, let's say this. It's always a lot easier to get the idea from somebody else and go with it than to come with it, up with it yourself. But, you know, I mean, seriously, it's like I'm doing well if I can implement it, let alone spend the time to come up with it. So I have never been proud about using somebody else's ideas. And in this instance, you're giving them away, so you might as well go for it. But, you know, if I see a therapist or hear of a therapist doing something that a kid loves, you better believe I'm not above trying it. Me too. And the other thing. An easy way to get an idea without having to peer over somebody's shoulder or try and get it through. What a mom tells you, you can just watch it and do it. And implement it. And the other thing about these ideas, and I hope all the ideas in the coming weeks will be that you can take one idea but use it for lots of developmental areas. And I write a summary. You'll on the if you go to the website it'll say therapy tip of the week for, you know, two, fourteen, twelve. And the videos are right there, but then scroll down below it because there are some therapy ideas for, you know, if your if a kid is working on receptive language, to target expressive language with single words, do this. If you're working on phrases, do this. You know, so there's some different ideas and I really Good. like that you can take an idea and use it for lots of different kids, but not in the same way. And I think that's what some therapists it's good when you have a verbal routine because you make sure that you are consistent with what you're doing. But if you are not thinking about and really at least mentally planning changes for kids for an activity based on what that kid is doing right now, you are stuck and you are lazy. <laughs> and so hopefully <laughs> these things will kind of challenge. And, and you know, and I'm saying this, Anybody that goes to the trouble of listening to a show like this or or watching a video week after week, it's not that kind of therapist anyway. Right. You know, if you are constantly challenging yourself. If only you could reach that it, kind of therapist, it would be great, right. wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, totally. No. So maybe there should be you some emails. And your stuff and read your stuff and all that, they're looking for ideas. They're wanting exactly. to expand and grow. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, Occasionally yeah. I'll get an email or a comment from someone that's a little, um, I don't even know the good word for it. In real life I would say, gosh, that was kind of catty how you said that. But, you know, I, and so, so many things are lost through interpretation when it's written and you're reading it. But sometimes somebody will say something and I'll think, gosh, this just must be that you must have just stumbled onto this because, you know, we, we have – such different philosophical beginnings that you can't possibly want to listen to this show or read my stuff because, you know, we're pretty much black and white on this, and, you know, I'm completely opposite of what your take is, so I always kind of try to put it in perspective with that with our regular listeners and our regular um, regular readers of the website and things like that they're usually wanting more, so it's the cream of the crop that we're talking to here, so that's exciting 
Right. All right. Uh, let's move on from that, but I did want to mention that because it, I had not talked about it. I think I might have mentioned it on the last show that we did, but since the, those videos are new, and so for our regular, and I know we have a slew of people that just get the shows straight to their iTunes that goes on their i all their i devices, their iPods, or on their i that i stuff, yeah. All that I. And so some people just naturally or or automatically get that downloaded so they may not go to the website or may not have they may not be sensitive about Facebook and have not seen those things. So I wanted to mention it if if they had not had a chance to check that out because I do think it's going to be great. And I've had some people ask me for some really specific ideas on there too. So if you're listening and you're thinking, oh gosh, I wonder what she would do with this kind of kid or for this kind of activity, shoot me an email about that because I'm always you know, I'm hoping this is going to be a regular feature, so pretty soon, you know, I don't know. I always think I can come up with new ideas, new spin on anything. But to get somebody else's idea or question someone has about how would you use this toy or this activity or how would you tweak this, you know, I would love a challenge like that. So if people want to send me an email, that would be great with uh, uh ideas for future therapy tips of the week and you can email me at laura at teachmetotalk.com or you can uh, find teachmetotalk.com on facebook and leave me a comment there all right moving right along tonight we are going to be talking about two articles or two um i think they were both they were posted on teachmetotalk.com's facebook page back in January, and we're, we've talked about these topics before, but they are so near and dear to our hearts and our philosophies and how we believe that we should be educating families that we thought we would revisit these ideas. So the first thing we're going to talk about tonight is eye contact, and a person that's, uh, she's a speech, her bachelor's degree is in speech pathology, but her, she's a a behavior analyst. She's a verbal behavior specialist, and I worked with her years ago when um, her family lived in Louisville, and now they live in Alabama. And she posted this uh, article, and I saw it and asked her if I could repost it on the website, and she was gracious enough to agree to that. And she wrote that her name is um, Missy Walker Carmen, and she works again, in a practice in Birmingham, and she and her or her friend, her colleague, William Nason, N-A-S-O-N, is that how you would pronounce his last name, Kate? I think it would I be. That's how I would pronounce it. I'm not sure mm-hmm. it's right, but that's probably how I'm I'd not either, and I apologize to him if that's an incorrect pronunciation of his name, but he's a clinical psychologist, and he wrote this article about eye contact, and it's titled, Please Don't Force Me to Look at You. And boy, doesn't it feel like that when we're working with our little friends that are on the autism spectrum, that sometimes it is like forcing them to um, get them to make and maintain eye contact. And his point with this, and we talk about that and how important eye contact is, but his take on this is that children that are on the autism spectrum 
more often than not also have auditory processing problems and other sensory processing differences. And sometimes their little systems cannot handle looking at you and listening to you at the same time. And so when we really force a kid to do that, we create lots and lots of um, anxiety or other issues that could be uh, construed as behavioral defiance or they're just refusing to do it. And sometimes it's not. And I'm back to my little tagline. It's not that they won't do it. It's that they can't do it. And so he's really encouraging us to take a second look as professionals and parents, to take a, take a, a new um, view of having a child look at you because how many times do we as adults, and again I'm talking about dealing with typically developing children too, how many times do we say to our little friends or want to say, look at me, you know, (laughs) and really demand that they give us their visual attention. And so remembering that for some of our friends that's almost impossible for them to be able to look at you and listen to your words and understand your words at the same time. So I thought this article was great. And it's on the website if anyone wants to take a specific look look at that and really read it word for word. But his message uh, really there is that when eye contact is forced, that it's not as beneficial and it may actually be more... Um, more of an interference with the child participating in your activity or even being able to process what you want him to do. So I thought it was a great a great take on that. Now that's not to say that we don't try to get a child to look at us and that we don't assess eye contact as part of a, a kid's initial evaluation. You know, eye contact is important. That social, it's an important part of social interaction and that's that engagement piece. Uh, but I did think that there were some good um, good points and good advice in the article, too. Kate, did you happen to take a look at that? I think you I probably did. read it when it was first. Yeah. What were your thoughts about this? Well, um, I mean, he makes some rather specific suggestions about mm-hmm. uh, how to encourage a child to look at you without saying, look at me, or, you know, jerking their little heads around yeah. to look That's at you. That's what I was about to say, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, you know, is, I'm sure there are some folks who do that with being, you know, good intention of trying to get a kid to be more socially connected and be more responsive to what's said to them. And he, he makes suggestions about actually using fewer words but a much more um, animated face, you know, Mm -hmm. using kind of hyper-exaggerated gestures. And I think that, um, you know, a good therapist kind of knows to do those things. I mean, that's... Right. And uh, it may be just so instinctive mm -hmm. that the therapist may not really be pointing that out to parents per se. I mean, it may just be... That's just automatic to them, but unless you tell a parent that or unless you're in your mentoring process with another therapist, that may be something that a a therapist has never really thought about before is using fewer words while at the same time bumping up that affect and bumping up your facial expressions and your gestures. 
Um, and some people really confuse animated and heightened affect with loud. And I know we've talked about this on the show before, but when I'm in a, when I'm doing a conference and I'm saying, we've got to be fun, we've got to be animated, they're thinking sometimes, and I think we talked about this on the last show, the therapist who raised her hand and said, you know, I prefer quiet therapy. You know, I don't like all that, that, um, you know, hoopla was the word that she used. <laughs> but for some of our friends, they have to have that. And, mm-hmm. again, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing backflips and being super loud, but you still need to be pretty darn engaged before you're going to be able to get any kind of response at all. And I think his point was really, really good about that. And I like how he said eye contact that's given willingly by the kid when it's not forced is more genuine anyway, and then you're going to get better results. But you've got to give, I think his point is you have to give a kid a reason to look at you. And not just because you're forcing them to look at you. Yeah, you really kind of have to. And, you know, when we work with kids on the spectrum, Depending on how involved they are, we may spend a long time teaching and training basically kids to engage with us visually, to mm-hmm. want to watch mm-hmm. what we're doing, to want to hear right. what we're saying. To right. And he's talking about, yeah, how do you establish that? It can't necessarily be forced because I think he's right, and I've certainly seen that with kids. When you, mm-hmm. when you force it, you kind of force them into shutdown or total overload yeah. and... Either way is a loss. You know, it's not at all therapeutic or productive. So he also talks, Laura, and I don't, I read it today, but I am sleep deprived, so I'm not going to say I (laughs) can tell you exactly what it said, but he made reference to how a lot of kids on the spectrum look at things out of their kind of peripheral vision. Yeah. And how sometimes that's how they, they, um, Again, I'm paraphrasing, but it seems as though for those kids who direct eye contact is is so difficult, they actually do better being kind of allowed to use that peripheral vision. They are watching. Right. And, you know, you and I have talked about specific kids so many times over the weeks and months and years, um, kids who, you know, I've been working with and or you've worked with and we thought they weren't even really watching and by gum they'll imitate a sign. Or they'll yeah. imitate a word and will think, oh, you know, <laughs> I got that. that. Yeah, I couldn't even. I mean, I have one on my caseload right now who does it, and it just obviously he's watching. But the first couple times he he imitated signs, I thought, well, how'd you even see it? You know, I right. it really looked as though he wasn't mm-hmm. directly engaged enough visually to see it. But obviously, since he was able to imitate it, he was watching. And that's mm-hmm. kind of bizarre, but I think that's true. And those kids, to meet them where they are, here's our recurring theme, to allow them to engage in the behavior that's natural and less threatening somehow to their systems is really right. more beneficial than to say, nope, this is the way a typical good kid does it. They watch me, so I'm going to force you to watch me. Right. You know, right. Not that we are, as you said, working on getting them to, quote, unquote, watch us, but to just full steam ahead force it uh, doesn't usually work. 
Yeah, you can't really put blinders on a kid and make him sit there right in front of you. That's not to say, too, though, that you we do want to move ourselves within their line of vision. I do that a lot. If I notice that a kid is doing using a lot of that uh, peripheral vision, in OT a long time ago, Pam Smithy, and I haven't worked with her in forever, but she's an OT in Louisville, she really said we should be playing beside this kid rather than in front of him. I, rem- mm. I remember her saying that with a kid a long time ago, and this was a kid who constantly, anytime you looked at him, and even when his mom took pictures of him, most of the time his little mm-hmm. eyes were cut over mm-hmm. to the side. And mm-hmm. that was such a good <sighs> recommendation for that specific kid. Because that was his line of vision, you know. It right. Was, it was periphery for him, and you know, you're saying right now with your little guy that that's how he uses that a lot. And we do automatically, I think, think about being in front of a kid, but sometimes beside them might be better. Mm-hmm. And so we have to we have to really kind of judge what's going to be best um, best for a kid to use in that situation. Sometimes, if I feel like eye contact is overwhelming. And I just kind of do this anyway. I hold a lot of kids when I'm working with them, especially if they're pretty um, scattered anyway and have a hard time staying on task and uh, playing with me. A lot of times, I plop them right down in my lap, and we're work. You know, I'm behind them, and I'm, I'm they're playing, but I'm really kind of giving that hand over hand physical assistance so that we can play um, together and that's not all the time you wouldn't do that for a whole session but if you were really trying to a kid's constantly running away and you're trying to get him to come back and settle down sometimes that direct body on body contact when you're not really right in his face necessarily but you're certainly helping direct his attention by being there and that's been pretty successful with a lot of kids with me especially one little guy that we're just finishing up because he's turning three i have played with him a lot with him in my lap and that's been pretty calming for him, I think. And I think the eye contact thing, again, he can't see me if I'm behind him, but that, that's that been okay for him. And a lot of times he's even, when I've been holding him like that, I've he's almost looked at me more because, and I've noticed it more because when he turns to look at me, I think, oh, my gosh, you really are looking at my face right now. You know, mm-hmm. and you can really, it's been more intentional. And, you know, I don't know that it's happened more or less because of that, but it's always been so strikingly obvious to me when he does it because it's a surprise because he's turning his head around. And, again, right. I don't think that's something that he's done accidentally. So that, that's that been kind of nice. You don't always have to really demand that face-on-face eye contact for 100% of the session. There are other ways that you can work and with And I kids do think are, sometimes therapists do that, and I know, Laura, I've said, In relative recent shows that I've gone more to that plopping them in my lap, as you said, I don't ever do it for an hour, but especially if the kid is just kind of going everywhere but with me, then it's like, okay, let's try. And it does seem like giving that little spot in your lap with the pressure that you're able to give them, sometimes Mm -hmm. I'll kind of give them a rub on the shoulders, trying to get them a little bit calmed down and focused and, you know, even if it's not maybe optimal, it wouldn't be what you'd choose if if you could exactly script how you want it, you would want to engage with a child. If if the traditional way of I'm going to sit across from you and play with you is a total bust, it sure yeah. beats the kid running away. 
and yeah, not totally engaging does. with what you're showing them anyway. So exactly, you know, yeah, yeah. And again, I think the important part is that this is just another tool and another strategy that you can use, especially for those kids who aren't able to sit right in front of you and stay with you the whole entire time. That might be something that um, would be helpful for any particular, you know, a specific kid in a specific situation. You know, Laura, so, the other thing that he doesn't, this guy doesn't really spell out, but I know that you and I both use a lot, is to hold whatever toy or object we're working with and trying to get kids to show an interest in, like right up in front of our faces so we're kind of hunkered down so that we can, or right. sometimes I'll stick them at a little coffee table or, you know, a little mm-hmm. kid's play table so that the object is... So that I don't have to hunker down quite as much. Yeah. <laughs> the old back. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like I spend half of my day like a question mark trying to get down on a two-year-old level who's sitting on the floor. Yeah. So if there's a, pl- a place I can put it up, sometimes I'll stick it on a couch, you know, mm-hmm. kind of get the kid up and playing so that I'm not quite as yeah. hunched over getting in their face. But holding those objects up in front of our faces, you know, if – they're showing an active interest in the object, that can certainly help at least, you know, encourage them to um, watch our faces a little bit more, even if really, yeah, they're watching because they like the object or want the object, we're at least part of the, you know, general picture, and that's um, a way, I think, to kind of desensitize them to, okay, I want you looking at my face, again, to encourage them to, watch our faces and watch our mouths and watch our eyes without being, that's what it's all about. You know, we're enticing right. them with the object. And a lot of times that works pretty well. Yeah, I play on coffee tables a lot mm-hmm. where we put the toy on the coffee table or on the couch. Or even if you're sitting in a kitchen, you can pull a kitchen chair over. And it does help to redirect the kids' attention again, not only to you, but to what you're doing. It almost defines mm-hmm. the play space a little bit better. Right. And, yeah, I, I think it's a, a really good and point. I, I read a coffee table, a kid's table, a couch, yeah. yes, something. Because a then bed, if you're, if you're in their bedroom, you put the toy mm-hmm. up on the bed, and then you two are sitting. The kid can either stand or sit, but you're sitting on the floor, but you're playing right there with the toy on the bed, and that does help a lot. Mhm. Because otherwise it's so low, and a kid to right. watch you, I mean, I'm bending over as much as I can, but it still almost <laughs> dictates that the kid has to look up a little bit. You know what right. I mean? I, and if yeah, the toy's and on the floor, 20. where they want to look is at the floor. Right, and you're not going to mm-hmm. get any kind of stuff. And joint attention is so important, too. You want them not only looking at you, but looking at the toy and then looking back and forth. And you can't really teach that if you don't have a way of getting right there beside the toy, too, and so that right. you're using your facial expressions to be real animated. In my 20s and 30s, I was better about lying down on my stomach and looking oh, up. Oh, I don't do that. I'm not sure I could walk out of the house. <laughs> I used to be so much better about it, and moms would say, oh, my gosh, look at you. You know, but mm. I haven't done that in a long time. I haven't heard that in a long time from a mom. I would have never up. spent an hour. <laughs> felt, I would have felt like I was doing a backbend for an hour, and I'd probably need, you know, traction for a week after that. So well, I my core muscles could probably 
Well, I could probably benefit from doing that. That would probably be good for my body, but I don't know. My my front, anyway, my back would probably revolt. Yeah, it kind of hurts like to it, talk yeah. about it for me at this point. I'm either hunched over or trying to figure out a way, how can I? And, you know, I do think also, one, if you're, if you put something on a coffee table, say, or the couch, it's... Um, one brings it up, two encourages that kid to be kind of face to face but in a less threatening way because you're focused sure. on the object and it kind of encourages sure. that peripheral vision that kids kind of engage in anyway when they're on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. those yeah, those work well. I think it also like you said, defines the space and kind of encourages yeah. a little less wandering, a little less randomness in a child's behavior. So Exactly. And if you're doing social games with a kid like this, I a lot of times will put a kid up on a table like that or a chair and we'll do bubbles or any kind of, again, any kind of little patty cake or peekaboo or so big or something. And then you're almost eye level with them at that point. Or I'll stick them on my knees and, Mm -hmm. you know, raise my legs so that they're eye level with me then too and you don't have to do the whole hunch over so you can really control not control but you can make it easier for a kid to even if by accident start to look at your face by controlling your positioning a little bit Um, I love that ball toy that you used too the Haberman ball am I saying that correctly I think it's Hoberman, but I'm not Hoberman. Sure. Yeah, I don't even. I mm-hmm. bought one of those after after our co treat back in several months ago, where you used it and you had your little poem. It was so cute. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've told you I bought that ball. I haven't really used it, but I like that kind of toy for and for that for if you don't know what that ball is, that's the ball made that looks like a sphere toy. It's the has the different colors of. What's a better way to describe that, Kate? It's like that jointed ball that you could open and close, and it looks like, again, a sphere. It I mean, reminds there a me of chemistry it? lab where you had to do the models of the, the <laughs> yeah. uh, molecules and stuff. You know, yeah. yeah. They're all kind of interconnected, and they make different sizes. And if anybody's listening, I would say if you work with zero, three-year-olds, go for the big one. I, mean, I bought the big one. Yeah, the big one. I've had yeah. the little one, and kids aren't really as interested in it. You know, they're okay, right. but the big one well, is cool. And then when it opens, it's probably three feet across. It's I mean, big, it's yeah. Pretty big, and it yeah. rolls. I mean, it crunches down, interfolds, interconnected joints, and gets down to about maybe 10 inches, like a ball that's 10 inches, but when it opens... All of them telescope out, and then it's about three feet apart. And I've never had a kid who didn't, who liked that ball, who didn't get inside of the ball. Right. Of course. (laughs) Well, my own typically developing children, when they were much, much, much younger, used to like to get in there. And then I had one that I used when I had that playgroup practice, and kids love that. It was such a winner. But Mm -hmm. it really does promote eye contact when you're holding that ball right in front of your face. A lot Mm -hmm. of kids who don't normally look at you, you know, that would be a great, great tool, a great investment, because that really um, promotes and facilitates that eye contact. I like what this guy who wrote that article said. He said, we invite eye contact. We don't force it. And that's a great Mm -hmm. way to word it. And that toy Mm -hmm. is a good a good." 
uh, tool to do that. And anything visual, really, that you can, any kind of visual toy that you can hold in front of your face, even those spinny light toys are sometimes mm-hmm. helpful when you've got them right in front of your eyes because isn't that where the kids want them anyway? <laughs> <laughs> it's right those those little toys right in front of their faces and so sometimes holding that there you can get some eye contact started. Now of course you're not gonna stay there and you know, use that again for a full hour every session, but it certainly is a way to hook a kid that's had difficulty establishing eye contact to use right. those really, really visual toys to get that going too. You know, Laura, I'll throw this out here, and this is for, um, I I don't know anything about it. I just have seen that there is some kind of app for, you know, iPads, iPhones, iTouches, Y, everything, that is some kind of app that is supposed to encourage or um, foster, improve eye contact. Yes, Mm -hmm. and I don't know the first thing about it, I don't even know how I don't even know how I feel about it theoretically, you know. <laughs> right. Um, but I'm just kind of putting a feeler out there for if anybody, one of somebody listening, has seen it, worked with it, knows a kid who's responded to it or didn't. I'm just to either email you or put something on face on your um, Teach Me to Talk website about. Oh, I know about that, and this is what I know. I just yeah. wonder what it is, and you know kind of interesting interesting concept i don't know well and the whole ipad boy that has come up a lot recently with moms mm-hmm. emailing me about that and talking about it and how do you use it and when is it effective when is it not effective maybe we should do a show about that in the next few weeks i don't know i'll have to really think i about don't that. feel uh, i mean i'll go along for the ride i'm not an I expert yeah, I don't know that much. It's really new that. Um, yeah. And and well, like I said, philosophically, I'm very torn with. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about that for kids under three. Um, I can certainly that, see for kids as they get older, why that technology would be very beneficial. But I'm a little torn with it about because I think so many. Well, this kind of is a segue into our next topic. It is. <laughs> that is beautiful how this yeah. comes up because we certainly know from research that when children are overexposed to the wrong kinds of screen time, they are really linking this to ADD and ADHD in children, and. They're saying that um, the link today that we're talking about specifically is from um, a pediatrician who's a dad who's also a researcher who I think he's from Seattle, and the name of the article is What Does TV Do to My Kid's Brain? And I, if I am just really going to encourage any therapist or mom who hasn't listened to this presentation. There's a video. It's 16 minutes. And he is really entertaining. And you know how much I like listening to a good speaker like that. Yeah, he's good. I mean, I would be willing to go see him. He's that good. Me too. (laughs) Me too. Uh And I always appreciate that. And he, he really talks about 
what TV does to a developing brain and how, and he really makes in very, and even though he has lots of initials after and before his name, he's very down to earth and it's it's mm-hmm. so worth your 16 minutes of your life to have him talk about this. And I love that he talks about it not only from his perspective as a researcher and as a doctor, um, who works with children, but as a dad. And he noticed that his newborn was really paying attention to television really, really early. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so he's talking about that, and he was fascinated about this, just with what impact it would have. And he makes such a good point with that when you introduce that kind of, that level of stimulation to a developing brain, it comes to expect that and crave that all the time. And so then when you place that child in a real-life, everyday pace, how slow and how um, just how it's not as stimulating as that fast pace, you know, change of change of your visual uh, field every 10 seconds. And he gave such a good analogy on there. He said, after you've watched an episode of Visit the Farm, was it Baby Einstein, Visit the Farm? Is that the example he used? Mm -hmm. I I watched this a long time ago. And he said, then you take a kid to a real farm, and he thinks, this is kind of boring because Mm -hmm. you don't have the, you know, (laughs) all the things, you know, the changing the picture every 10 seconds and the new music and the – all those things, and he really compared that to an episode of Mr. Rogers, and it did remind me of how much, especially my oldest son, who's 22, liked Mr. Rogers, but he has a clip of Mr. Rogers versus Powerpuff Girls or something like that, and you're looking at the difference between those two episodes, and he really challenges you to think about a kid's brain and how damaging it can be to really have a kid's brain attuned to that and want to seek that out. And he says, no wonder we're seeing all these attentional problems in children because we've rewired their brains by this overexposure to the wrong kind of screen time. And I really liked that he didn't just bash all TV and bash all things. He really gave a concrete reason why some choices will be better than other choices for kids. And I just thought it was a great, great video, a great clip. And I think you liked it as much as I did. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, of course, it kind of supports what we've felt in our guts for quite a while, watching those kids who tend to really, and it's to me very interesting that a lot of times it's precisely, I think, those kids who may have a predisposition to that anyway who almost crave that. And those right. are the kids who will watch it for hours on end if allowed to do so. And then you go to play with them, and you can't hold their attention for a minute. You know, and it's like, right. how can you watch three hours of TV without blinking, and I can't hold your attention for a minute? It does seem like it's, you know, they that type, those kids who uh-huh. really have an undying thirst and quench for that kind of TV and he does, he gives some examples of it. They also did some research with mice, which I thought was interesting, looking at how... I forgot how, about that, yeah. Yeah, when they exposed them to, um, I think it was maybe 24-7 TV, 
in the first 42 days of life how it changed their behaviors and basically it made them um their behavior more erratic, more random, um more hyper more yeah. hyper and they also did something kind of cool that kind of was their interpretation anyway was that those mice who were uh weaned on all that cr- constant television didn't even learn as well as mm-hmm. the um mice who were not and they and it's true in children i mean they're showing that kids who watch tons of that tv tend to have way more learning issues than kids who don't right. and it's that rapid right. screen and when you watch it you do kind of go yeah that is Choo, choo, choo. You know, it's just kind of one picture after another, right. as opposed to the Mr. Rogers, where it's like, sweet old Mr. Rogers walking into <laughs> the room. You know, there's really no change. <laughs> and this is, choo, 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 you know. He's so like, called. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's real yeah. hollow, but who knew he was that good, you know, I mean, compared to... This and a lot of kids you do see, and it does, like I said, whether they're on the spectrum or just kids who have really, really, really short attention spans are absolutely mesmerized by that kind of TV. You know, they right. really like it. And unfortunately, sometimes parents think, well, he's really watching. He's really, he must be learning. He loves to watch it. He watches it five hours a day. You know, sometimes I want to blurt right. out, what's he learning? <laughs> I know. Then why am I here? Yes, tell me what he's learning. I don't see it. You know, it's yeah. like, mm, yeah, he's learning not to learn from real life. He's learning to right. be wrapped up into the television, but there doesn't seem to be any real thing you can turn around and say he's learned other than to tune out and tune in to the television. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so as this is such important information for our families who tell us that they have a history of ADHD or ADD or ADHD, they have a history of learning problems. Um, when when you're hearing a family as a therapist tell you those things, then you really know that you've got to talk to a mom about better ways to parent and stimulate this kid, and you need to share. And can you control that the TV's off in the house? No, but until a mother knows that she could potentially be setting her child up for even more problems, you know, she's not going to know that. Pediatricians, you know, I don't have a kid under three or under two, so I don't know what they're saying to moms during well baby checkups, but the American Academy of Pediatrics says that there should be no TV for children under two and that just limited quality viewing experiences after two. And I think now with... All of the technology with iPads and all of the apps and all those things, I think, you know, and I think even with the American Academy of Pediatrics, I think that they have changed that language now to say screen time rather than just television. Oh, good. Mm. Yeah. And so you really, I think we have to be really careful about that and really, you know, use it judiciously. And I don't have, I mean, I... I'm, you know, self-analytical all the time, but I've tried it as far as my parenting boy, you know, all the ways that, you know, we could potentially screw up our kids. That is one of my biggest regrets with hearing all of this research. Mine too, Laura. I, I wish that I had not let my children watch 
so much television when they were little. And, you know, they're 22, 20, and 15. And really, our uh, my younger, the 20-year-old and the 15-year-old didn't watch nearly as much as the 22-year-old. And they, because they were engaged in other things, they were doing other things, I, and I think that was just kind of their innate interest. They liked right. to play better and do other things better, so they found other things to do. But my my kid who had the most sensory issues and the and learning differences with his dyslexia, boy, I hope he doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> I don't think he. Johnny's shaking his head, going, "He doesn't. Don't worry." Oh, good. He's at but, college now. He's going to the Cats games. I'm sorry, Laura, but I doubt he's listening. <laughs> I know, but my point is he was so into television. And, I mean, we did a lot of play stuff based on that, too. I mean, when we would get a new Disney movie, I would, you know, and I was the kind of mom, if he liked Aladdin or if he liked whatever, boy, I would buy the coloring book with it and I would buy a character or two and we would pretend with it, too. So it wasn't just about the the movie, but he watched way too much television. Mm-hmm. And And our other two who haven't had issues with those kinds of things really didn't. They were into other things. They were they did pretend play all day long and right. occupied themselves in other ways. And so I think that's so interesting just from my little fish bubble from parenting with, you know, three very different children and different needs, but just how all that kind of worked out. But that is a huge regret I have is how I really did overuse television. And I willingly for me, Laura. Same for me. And, you know, same exact scenario. My firstborn liked television way more and paid way more attention. And guess what? And I'm not, I mean, she went on to get a diagnosis of ADHD. And my younger one really didn't watch TV very much, even if it was on. She had toys. I mean, we had toys out, and she played, and she really preferred more tactile stuff. She wanted to color. She wanted to paint. She wanted to glue. She wanted to do Play-Doh. She wanted to, you know, very hands-on. Mm-hmm. And then my firstborn, man, she could veg out to that TV. She was the one, you know, locked in on it. A bomb could go off. She didn't flinch. You know, it was painful every time I turned it off because she really wanted to watch it. You know, that was her thing. And... She too, and I like I said, it does seem to be that it's those kids who may have a predisposition anyway, and it's right. exactly what they don't need, but it's what they want, and it's very easy. Right. I hope you're. Yeah. I mean, I hope that pediatricians really are getting that message out. I hope they are. And, I don't and necessarily hear it from parents all that much. I mean, if I hear it from parents, I get the impression that. They've heard it or read it elsewhere. It's not necessarily, I I don't know that pediatricians are quite on that. They have a lot of bandwagons to be on. That's, it's a, (laughs) you know, from. I've treated a lot of pediatricians' kids, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've heard them talk about that. And the pediatricians' kids that I've treated in the last five years have really been anti-TV. And they may have used TV only for cross-country trips to Graham, to Disney World, you know, or right. only for, um, well, you know, 30 minutes while I'm making dinner. And to use it to right. uh, be wise about it in their own homes. I just hope they're sharing it with families. I hope they are, too. Yeah. And it can be it's a hard important. sell. You know, I know I 
struggle with getting the message across, and sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not. I right. feel like, you know, right. mm, some families yeah. are going to let them watch TV no matter how many times you say it is ruining their brains. Please don't. <laughs> you know <laughs> You know, but I've had some kids that I've said that to moms, and I go back in a week or two, and or especially over the course of a month, and I'll say to a mom, "Oh my gosh, she's really coming along. What what do you think's going on here? Let's talk about I've turned her off the television." And that's yep. what they say. That's what they mm-hmm. say. And I have one little girl who was in Teach Me to Talk, that first DVD that I did. So I saw her in 2007 and 2008. And she, her mom was an attorney who decided to stay home. I mean, I think she had been in daycare for a little bit. But her mom decided to come home, and she was working from home and, you know, still kind of wrapping up her law practice. And so I said to that, you know, she talked to me. She was so honest. That's the other thing. When you get a mom who just flat out tells you the truth the first time you meet them, mm-hmm. and I said, you know, what's her daily routine like? And she's telling me about working. I said, what's she doing when you're working like this? And she said, well, the TV's on. And I said, oh, that is not a good idea. Let's talk about this. And mm-hmm. I was able to have it in, in, you know, not a condescending way, but just a very – very honest, very forthright conversation, and she did not. She pretty much turned the TV Pulled off the that day. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And she said it was hard for all of them. But when I went back to see that little girl, like two weeks later, I could not believe the difference. I mean, she was right. she was like a different kid. Now, has it been a dramatic change on every kid? No, but I don't know that other moms have really gone to that. Length. I mean, I just had to tell that very educated, highly educated, very concerned mom one time, and she right. took it and ran with it. And her husband was an attorney, too. And, you know, she, so again, highly motivated, highly educated family, and they totally changed the whole dynamic of their home. And they had an older kid who didn't react to TV like that. And they would say, well, you know, it didn't really seem to be a big deal for her because she would just play or do her own thing, and it didn't matter if the TV was on or not. And that's what we were talking about with our other children who didn't have issues, didn't Mm -hmm. have learning issues. So it's it's very Laura was pretty old before she'd really sit and watch TV. She just didn't really attend to it. And yet she was in her play was yeah. very healthy and really, you know, did a nice job with a wide variety of things, but TV just didn't really get her. I remember thinking that with our And don't you have son. sometimes parents on your caseload who worry about their kids who don't watch TV? And I'm exactly. like, it's great. It and that's what I was about, this horrible story I was about to tell about myself. I was, mm. you know, and again, this is 20 years ago, so times are totally different, but I was kind of worried about Tyler with his attention, because in my mind, we didn't know this stuff yet, and I thought that Jonathan's attention was better because he Mm -hmm. could watch all that TV, and how Tyler might have been the one with the attention issues, and it was opposite, you know? And I think I kind of worried about Laura early on, too, mm -hmm. but I did think, well, she does play, and she does, you know, it was easy to see that she did use her time productively, and really in a much more normal way, but... I kind of remember thinking, boy, Greta could watch two DVDs, or no, 
videos. Back then it was a yeah. video. It wasn't Two a video. It wasn't a DVD. Yeah, a right. VHS was, tape. Yeah. Yes, it was back to back. I'm not going to even say beta. I think it was VHS. Uh. So she could do two back-to-back, no problem. And I thought that was pretty amazing that, you know, a right. one-year-old could sit through an hour and a half of a movie or a TV or, you know, whatever right. show of the moment she was into. And Laura did it. And right. that, I was totally backwards on that, too. Yeah, well, and I do think I love this quote, and I say it all the time, and I know if anybody's read some of my stuff, they may have heard me or read this before. But when we know better, we do better. And we didn't really know then, 20 years ago, when our kids were babies, that TV was as could be as detrimental, especially to children who have those predispositions anyway, and now we do. And so that's the nice thing about, well, you know. And the pediatrician's name that you, that you have linked to where he does the 16 minutes of He, let me look really quickly. His name is Dimitri. I guess that's a Greek name. I probably won't be able to pronounce his last name. I'll spell it's kind it. of a mouthful. Uh, let's see. I'm scrolling way down. So if you are trying to look for this on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page, you'll have to scroll down. It was a while ago. Shoot, I may have passed it already. I think you relinked it, Laura. To, oh, to talk I did. About I'm so show. glad you said that. Yeah, it's up yeah. at the top. I'm so That's glad you say, said that. I didn't I did scroll down. It. it was right there. <laughs> it's on. It's on today's. It's on the today's post about this show, and it's the second link down. What does TV do to my kid's brain? And it's a picture of the first pediatrician that wrote about the second pediatrician doing. The story. His name is Dimitri uh, Christicus, maybe. I don't know. C H R I S T A K I S. How would you say that? That's probably right. Yep. Dimitri something. And but the link is right there. So. Um, you well, don't he may have be the really messenger of. Hard. Please don't let your kids veg out to the TV and. Certainly don't let them in it. They do like that rapid. He quotes, he shows a clip of Baby Einstein and of, like you said, of the power I wonder if has he been sued yet, but oh well. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, he says this is how many times it changes screen, uh, flat, changes pictures, images right. in 60 seconds, and it's a very high number as opposed mm-hmm. to a slower, and he gives Mr. Rogers as the example, mm-hmm. It's um it's pretty compelling. I mean, I think like you said, is. he gives it from every perspective, and yeah. the research that supports his position is, I think, very compelling. So he may be the messenger of it, and who better to give it than a dad and a pediatrician? So I know, and he's so personable. His you know, mm-hmm. it's not dry. He's really funny on the video, so I think it's good. Another researcher that's doing some stuff about that is Jill Stam, S-T-A-M-M, and she has written that great book that I've recommended before called Bright from the Start, and that's the book right. that I give for baby shower presents and things, especially to our friends that are therapists that are having babies. Oh. And she talks about that link, and it's a couple years old now, maybe older than that now it may be four or five years old now but she it's amazing how time flies as we get older isn't it and (laughs) she says in there you know even when this book was written that this was her new topic for research and she was at 
either Arizona State or University of Arizona, and now she is at the MIND Institute, M-I-N-D, at University of California, Davis, and they are doing lots of autism research. And so I always like it when when I have liked someone and read someone for a while. And again, her book is not, even though she's a neuroscientist, it is so easy to read. And it's so, it's really written for parents of typically developing children or, you know, it's just really written for parents about how critical the first three years are. And she takes every developmental domain and talks about parenting practices and educational things that you can do and build into your daily routines. And she is very anti-TV. And she I must writes, admit I uh, haven't read that. I'm going to have to make that my goal to read that because you've talked about really it. It's really good, years. Kate. You'll mm-hmm. like it, and it really—I right mean, especially from, from your perspective, a DI's perspective—and she gives, she has so many great little tips that I've implemented before. She uses a lot of place mats to play on. I almost mentioned this a few minutes ago when we were talking about putting your TV, putting your toy up on a couch or up on a chair, because she says that when you give a kid a visual spot to look, and when you train them to do that, that they automatically their participation and intention improves. And I think that's what Hmm. happens with us when we have toy bags and we train a kid, okay, there's going to be a lot of fun stuff in here, so you're going to want to sit over here with me. Right. You know, that really hooks most of the children that we work with other than, you know, kids who have such significant issues that, you know, that's not even enticing enough. But kids who were linked more toward typical development, that is all we have to do is bring that bag in and sit down, and they are pretty much there with you, especially after the first week or two. A lot of our kids run and sit in the place that we've been playing because they know this is the routine. This is what we do. This is, And I think that, that that whole bringing in toys thing, that's your other argument for being able to do that is because you are helping that child pretend and anticipate just by those that visual routine that you're doing. Right. So, but her her thing is she uses placemats, like a, a solid color placemat so that you're directing your baby's attention to, hey, look at this. <laughs> Listen hmm. up. We're going to play. And yeah, I'm going to have is, to Amazon that when I get off the phone and just order it so I can make myself read it because you have talked about oh, it and I've always thought, sounds good, need to read that. You need to just borrow my copy and I have that little... Prezi for you anyway, that little, uh, my little find, my dryer that you push the button, the toy dryer that dries the clothes, Um, (laughs) and so I can just give those to you at the same time. And that's going to be this week's therapy tip of the week. I'm going to have that that toy on that video, so that's a little lead-in. Uh, oh, good, that. then I'll just be able to watch that, and I won't have to strain anything <laughs> coming up with my own routine. I can just watch it and implement. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. Yeah, so that's, um, oh, I even, oh, I'll bring you that book when I give you that toy. So anyway, all right, now we sound like we're just having a regular phone conversation, and we're still on the show. <laughs> well, I think we're talking about related stuff. We are. So I'm glad we got to talk about those things tonight. Um, and you can, again, those are linked. Those art, both those articles about eye contact and TV are linked on teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page, as well as 
a link to therapy tip of the week, the three that I've done, and this one will um, probably won't be out. I already have the one posted for this week. It'll be next weekend for the next week before we have the cute little dryer toy on there. But that's a darling toy. I can't wait to play with that. Me neither. And I'm getting one, so (laughs) (laughs) woohoo! Something I didn't already have. Can you believe it? I know. I tried to call you three times from Walmart that day to see if you had it, and I thought, oh, she's, her cell phone's not working at home. She's, it's Saturday. Yeah. She doesn't have her phone on her. Okay. I think right. maybe I, I think was napping if you want to know the truth, but <laughs> I believe oh, well, I was entitled to that. You're entitled to nap. All right, okay. so I think that does it for this week. Next week's show, we haven't talked about this yet, but I got an email from someone who asked me this. She said, what does a typical session look like for you? How do you conduct your typical sessions? And I thought that was a great question, and I think we've talked about bits and pieces of that before, but we've never had a show devoted to that. Can you remember a show devoted to that? Not specifically. Certainly over the months and years of doing this show, a um, very astute listener would probably put two and two together. But, no, I don't think we've spent an hour talking about specifically what it looks and exactly how we do it. Yeah, and so I want to do that for next week. And there are some... Um, session outlines that we're going to use to talk about this from Teach Me to Talk, the Therapy Manual. So if you can't wait until then, you could get yourself a copy of the Therapy Manual and take a look at that because they're in that last chapter. And I do think it's um, that'll be a good show topic, and I'm excited about doing that. So we'll talk about it for different um, different developmental levels. Okay. All right. So we have a plan okay. for next week. I hope you'll join us then. Okay. Thanks, Laura. Thanks. Bye. Bye.